be on television shows to, as kind of a Christian perspective and, a, and a, especially an apologist as an apologist. Um, however, not long after his passing, allegations against him of sexual misconduct surfaced. And his ministry, of course, denied the allegations and they pledged to conduct an independent investigation to get to the truth of the matter. Well, unfortunately, just this last month, the truth came out and the allegations were found to be true. And the investigation continues to unearth even more details. And stories like this have become all too common in the world and in the church. Pastors and ministry leaders disqualifying themselves and bringing shame to the name of Christ through a moral failing. My sister and I were talking about this revelation as it concerned Ravi Zacharias because we both really looked up to him and were very appreciative of his works and his writings and you know, his, his talks and his lectures and things. And she said that she was just so disappointed to hear this news about him. And she said, it just goes to show you that you really can't look up to anybody but Jesus. And isn't that the truth? Everybody has failings. Everybody has sins. Everybody falls and stumbles. As it concerns the people that we read about in the Bible, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, there is no such thing as a Bible hero. Because even the best ones fail. And most of them fail spectacularly. Even David, that we've been talking about now for several weeks, a man after God's own heart, the archetypal Christ-like king in Scripture, failed spectacularly and even more egregiously than Ravi Zacharias and those like him. And yet we call David a man after God's own heart. How could he ever carry such a title as that? Is there hope for David? Is there hope for Rabbi Zacharias? Is there hope for me? Our passage for today carries the story of David's greatest failure, both as a man and as a king. And it shows us also the path to redemption from that greatest failure. And although he does find redemption from this sin we're going to read about in just a minute, even forgiven sin carries consequences. That's why chapter 11, and I've mentioned this before, chapter 11 in the book of 2 Samuel is kind of the turning point of the book. The first 10 chapters are all about this great king and the golden age of Israel and all David does and accomplishes. And then chapter 11 comes and from here till the rest of the book, it's all downhill because these sins start to catch up with him. So if you have your Bible open to 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's start with verse 2. It says that it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, that's pretty bad. 
David has slept with another man's wife, and now she is pregnant. He knew that she was married before he slept with her. He just thought that he would get away with it. But now she has conceived a child. And so not only has he sinned against God by doing this, but he sinned by this woman's husband, and he's in a pickle because he's going to have to find a way out. Now this is pretty obviously bad on a variety of levels here. And I, but I think we need to know that this isn't necessarily out of pattern for David. After all, and we've talked about this before, by this time in his life, David has eight wives. Why does David have eight wives? Well, basically because nobody is going to tell him no because he's the king. So the notion that David finds a woman he wants and he just takes her for himself, it really shouldn't shock us because he's done this before. Again, the tricky part here is that this woman couldn't come and be his ninth wife because she was already married to one of David's trusted commanders in his army, and now she is pregnant. So what in the world is David going to do to get out of this? Well, he's going to try to cover up his own sin by getting a big old shovel out and going to the sin pile and shoveling a bit more on top of it. He's going to try to hide his sin with some more sin. So David calls for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come back from the battle, come back from the fighting, and spend some alone time with his wife. Right? And that's going to, that way it's going to look like the baby belongs to Uriah instead of David, and David will be covered. But David does, uh, excuse me, Uriah does something that David doesn't expect. He does come back when David calls him, but he does not go home. Because he says, far be it from him to go and enjoy the pleasures of home while his own men are still out there on the battlefield. So all the time that Uriah is back, he sleeps at the door of David. He sleeps at David's doorstep. So if you're keeping track here, David commits adultery, and then he has this scheme to try to cover it up, but his lies didn't work. So now, what is he supposed to do? Well, let's get that sin shovel out and go back to the pile and shovel some more on top. Look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who's the commander of the army, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now this time, everything goes according to David's plan. That's exactly what happens. Uriah goes into battle, into the fiercest part. They pull back. And he dies. So now David has committed adultery. He's lied and schemed to try to cover it up. He's pulled other people into that lie in order to help him conceal it. And he's murdered a man. That's quite a snowball that has rolled down the hill, wouldn't you say? And isn't that the way it always works when we try to cover sin with more sin? It just leads to nothing good. Now, how in the world does that kind of process happen to a man that the Bible describes to us as a man after God's own heart? Now, contrary to what some people think, of course, Christians aren't perfect. We are still tempted by sin, and we still give in to that temptation. Even David, a man after God's own heart, wasn't immune to that temptation. 
And the book of James actually details how something like this can and does happen. If you want to, you can turn your Bible to James chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. James 1, verses 14 and 15. These verses show us how this happens to someone like David and how this happens to someone like you and me. So if you go to James chapter 1, start with verse 14. James says this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, David isn't immune to sin and temptation just because he is king. In fact, if anything, being a man in authority just opens up all new avenues of temptation. Like we said, you know, David had a lustful eye, a wandering eye to say the least, and if he found a woman he liked, he married her. Even though God expressly commanded kings not to have multiple wives. David did anyway. Why? Because he could. There was almost certainly more temptation for David as a king than for the commoner. But notice the progression that James lays out here in these verses. He says temptation comes from desire. So the question for each of us should be, what am I desiring? Because that's where the, temptations is going, the temptation is going to come from, from my desires. So am I desiring things that are good and righteous? Or am I desiring things that are outside of those bounds that God has made? Because our temptations are directly related to, and they're going to come from, our desires. In David's case, his desire was to have another beautiful woman that he just happened to see by chance. And so his temptation is born out of that desire, and he gave into that temptation by taking this woman Bathsheba for himself. The formula is that simple, folks. There's nothing mysterious about it. Temptation comes from an unrighteous desire, and that unrighteous desire leads to sin. Maybe it's a desire for intimacy, maybe for possessions, maybe for power, maybe for wealth, maybe for prestige or position. It can be anything. Whatever your desire, you can expect temptation to come from it. And again, this, isn't, this is something that Christians aren't immune to. You don't automatically live a life free from unrighteous desire and subsequent temptation just by being a Christian. And you don't automatically stop giving in to that temptation because you're a Christian. That's why the Christian life is a daily battle, a constant evaluation of our heart's desires. What do I desire? Do I desire God? Do I desire righteousness? Do I desire holiness? Those are, of course, good desires, right? You're not going to have sinful temptations come from those good and godly desires. Or do I desire the fulfillment of the lust of my flesh in whatever way that might take form? This is a daily battle. It's something the Christian fights with and, and deals with every day. That's why the Bible tells us to be continually renewing our minds through the power of God's word. That's why the Bible tells us to take every thought captive. That's why the Bible tells us to think about things that are true and right and praiseworthy and excellent. Because it doesn't happen automatically. It's an intentional battle that you are constantly engaged in every day. 
And as you can see, the moment we put our guard down, those desires creep up and sin takes hold. And as we're about to see, there is a path of redemption from that sin, but it always carries consequences with it. If you still are open to to James 1, what does he say? He says that, you know, these temptations come from our desire. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is no sin that does not ultimately lead to death. Every sin, even the ones you perceive as minor, leads to death. And I hope you can see that in David's case, right? David sinned, and then he shoveled more sin on top, and then he shoveled even some more sin on top of that, and it led to all sorts of death. Of course, the the death of of, uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he died as a result of David's sin. Other people died in the battle, kind of creating that whole scenario for Uriah to be killed. And as we're going to see in a few weeks, you know, like I said earlier, this is the nosedive. This is where the downward spiral begins of David's kingdom. This sin right here is going to lead to more death, physical death. And what James is talking about here is also spiritual death. Sin divides us from God. So God sends this prophet named Nathan to confront David for his sin. And he does it in kind of a roundabout way that David never sees coming. So now if you have your Bible open, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and starting with verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now do you see what Nathan has done here with David? He has given an example of the same kind of sin that David has committed, except he's using lambs instead of wives. And David, unknowingly, he's, this is all over his head at the moment, he unknowingly pronounces death upon himself, right? He says, that man deserves to die. Now look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the one who's done this, David. Wow, that's kind of wild. I mean, think of the courage it must have taken for Nathan to come to the king and rebuke him like this. Who is Nathan to call out the king? The king does what he wants. And so Nathan was risking his life by doing this, but because he cares about David, and more so because he loves God, he brings this issue to David and confronts him with it. So what does David do now? How does he get out of this? How does he fix it now that he has just pronounced death upon himself? Well, thankfully, David kind of breaks this pattern because, of course, before he was going back to the sin pile, right? Just shoveling some more sin on it. He's not going to do that. But what hope does he have to make things right here? 
How does he fix this? How does he fix the, the consequences of his sin in the real world? And then how does he also fix the, the consequences of, this, of his sin between him and God? Well, folks, some things you just can't fix. The physical consequences that as, were as a result of this, of course, you know, people died as a result of David's sin. There's no fixing that. And now David has made his bed and he's going to have to lie in it. And that's going to be a painful lesson for him to learn. And I'm sure some of you have learned that lesson. I know I have learned that lesson before. You've made your bed and now you've got to lie in it. But that's a reminder of how debilitating sin is. It's just a little foretaste of God's judgment for sin. The things that we feel, the effects that we feel, the consequences we feel when we fall into and give into sin, it's not fun. It's just a little foretaste of God's ultimate judgment against sin. But here's what Nathan says is going to happen to David. These are the physical consequences, things David can't fix. Look at verse 10 of 2 Samuel 12. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Listen, folks, sin has consequences. And for David, the consequences involved the frustration of his kingdom. It's all going to come crashing down around him. And it would be done in front of everyone for all to see. Not like in secret, like he did. But everyone's going to know about this. But perhaps most devastatingly, the child that he conceived with Bathsheba would die. If you read verses 15 to 23 of chapter 12, it tells about the death of David and Bathsheba's child. And I'm actually going to write more on this passage on my blog in the coming week. Because how in the world are we to understand the death of this child as a consequence of David's sin? It's hard to accept, hard to understand. I'm going to try to tackle that on my blog this week. But for now, what we need to see is that sin has consequences. And some of those consequences are more far-reaching than others. Some of the consequences of David's sin, he's not even going to feel yet for years to come. But sin always has consequences, and there's nothing David can do about it. But what about the spiritual consequences of sin? What about this rift that has now come between him and God because of all of this, you know, shoveling and piling up sin upon sin? Is there anything David can do about that? Nope. There's nothing that he can do about that either. David's only hope is that God can do something about that sin. And God can. But even if David's sin can be dealt with spiritually, it still incurs those physical consequences. Even forgiven sin has consequences. 
But once Nathan shows David the severity of his sin, David confesses it back in verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And now look at this. Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, when David realizes that he has been called out, and he realizes the severity of what he's done, he admits his sin. And he must have surely thought that the punishment for his sin would be death, right? Because Nathan has to assure him, he's like, look, you're not going to die. You shall not die. Because I'm sure David thought, I can't believe what I've done. Surely God is going to kill me for this. But Nathan says, you shall not die. But there's no way for David to do anything about the rift between him and God. It has to be done by God. There's no way for David to earn his way back into God's good graces, you know, to try to do more good, more good deeds so he can kind of balance out the scale of the murder and the adultery and all that stuff. That's not at all what the case is. God has to do something here, and that's what Nathan says. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You see, God is the one who has to do something about David's sin. But listen, God isn't going to do anything about David's sin unless David turns from that sin and believes that God could do something about it. You see, Nathan could have come to David. He could have called him out and David could have said, so what? Yeah, so I I slept with this woman, then I had her husband killed. Oh, well, (laughs) them's the breaks. Did you forget, Nathan? I'm the king. I get to do what I want, so deal with it. David could have gone that direction. In other words, he could have denied that he had done anything wrong. And if David denied that he did anything wrong, then what motivation does he have to seek redemption? He doesn't think he needs redemption if he doesn't think he's ever sinned. You see, in order for David to be redeemed, David first has to admit that he's the kind of person who needs to be redeemed. He has to admit that he is a sinner that he has sinned. That's why David receives grace, because he knows he's a sinner who needs forgiveness. He's able to admit that that is who he is. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? He said, sick people don't need a doctor, excuse me, sick people do need a doctor, not healthy people. Healthy people don't need a doctor, only sick people do. Only sinners need redemption, Jesus said. Righteous people don't need to be redeemed because they're righteous. So the question is, are you a sinner? And if you think you're one of those healthy people or one of those righteous people who don't need redemption or a healthy person who doesn't need a doctor, you are self-deceived. You don't know the depths of your own sin. You haven't seen it the way David has here. And if you think you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. If you think you're righteous, then you're not going to go looking for redemption because according to you, you don't need it. This is what the Apostle John summarizes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, if we say that we haven't sinned, you know what, folks? We're liars. I mean, plain and simple, it just isn't true. We are sinners. But do you realize that you're a sinner? Can you admit it to yourself and to God? And in 1 John 1, 9, John follows that up. He says, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You see, if we are willing to acknowledge the reality that we are sinful beings, there is a loving God who is ready and waiting and eager even to extend grace to us. This is how David finds redemption. He doesn't deny his sin. He doesn't pull the, I'm the king, deal with it. I get to do what I want. No, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in confessing his sin and believing that God has the power to do something about it, that is where David finds forgiveness. Again, we've, we read this earlier in the service, and if you want, you can turn your Bible to Psalm 51, because this is a psalm that David wrote after this exact incident in his life. You'll read it there in your Bible. It says it at the top of Psalm 51. This, David wrote this psalm after this whole confrontation with Nathan and after his affair and the murder and even the death of his child. This is what David says in verses uh, 1 to 6 of Psalm 51. Listen to these words and see if David is aware of his sin and if he's willing to ask God for help. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to my, your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then you jump down to verse 16. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see what David's saying there? Right? There's this rift between him, because of God, between him and God because of his sin. And how does David fix that rift he can't do it by offering sacrifices or by doing good things to balance out the scales god has to do something in order for god to do something david must come before him with a broken spirit acknowledge his sinfulness these words are the the spirit of what we read in first john chapter 1. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you remember before David became king, God told the king at the time, Saul, the previous king, he told Saul that he was going to find a new king, a different king, a better king, and he actually says, I'm going to find a king who would be a man after my own heart. And that king is obviously David. But how can a man be after God's own heart if he sins in such spectacular ways? I would tell you it's because of how he responds to his sin. Being a person after God's own heart, it doesn't mean moral perfection. It means acknowledging your sin, bringing it to the cross, repenting of it, and moving on. You know, there's a common perception in the world that Christians are perfect people. And all God's people said, ha, right? We are not perfect people. And there's even this weird stigma within the church of admitting uh, to being sinful in Christian communities. There's like this stigma for admitting spiritual and moral weakness as though people with open and honest sinful struggles are somehow less than. It doesn't make any sense because uh, we're here 
gathered as Christians to declare our brokenness, right? We're here to admit that we're sinners, that we need the death of the Son of God to atone for our sin. So we shouldn't be ashamed or afraid to confess our sins because we have a very great Savior who came for the express purpose of forgiving sins. We should be the first people to acknowledge that we are not perfect. After all, again, it took the death of the Son of God to deal with our sin. That alone is uh, evidence enough that we are not perfect people. And so being a man or a woman after God's own heart is as simple as this. Acknowledging your sinfulness in light of God's righteousness. And then constantly returning to the cross and glorying in the grace that is there. It has nothing to do with being super spiritual. It has nothing to do with some strict, rigid, moral code, right? Because, I mean, if it did, you can cancel David out. But no, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And what makes him a man after God's own heart is that he knows his sinfulness. He confesses his sin. He knows that he's a man who needs grace. And when that grace is extended to him, he grabs onto it through faith. Of course, that doesn't give us license to act and live however we please. We can say that it would be better, it would have been much better for David to have resisted this temptation that came up, right? We can say with certainty it would have been better for David to never involve himself with Bathsheba in the first place. Sure, there's grace after all of this sin, but it would have been better for him to just avoid this whole situation, Because if he had resisted that temptation, multiple people would still be alive. People died as a result of his sin. So yeah, it would have been better had David resisted and never sinned at all. Not to mention the rift that his sin caused between him and God as a result. And not to mention the physical consequences that David had yet to even experience. But the reality is that we do still sin, even though we're redeemed. Sin still exists in our lives. So how do we deal with that contradiction? That we are simultaneously justified before God, and yet we still sin. We still battle this temptation. Is it even possible for me to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Because, man, some weeks it seems like every temptation that arises, I lose. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but speaking for myself... As I walk down the Christian life every day, and there's temptations that come up every day, and sometimes I I get the victory over them, and other times I fail miserably. And then you ask yourself, how can I be a man after God's own heart when I fail so miserably? Folks, it's not some scorecard about all your moral failings. It's what you do with those moral failings. Do you bring them before the Lord? Confess your sinfulness. Turn from your sinfulness, grab on to grace, and then move on following Jesus. Doing better the next time. His Spirit coming alongside of you and walking with you so that you will resist that temptation the next time it rises. That's how you know you're growing in the Christian life. Is that, yeah, there are some failings, right? There's this temptation comes up and I gave into it. But next time, I'm going to win. That's what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. To bring that sin before the Lord, to turn from it, and to continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus by the power of his Spirit. And that's what David does. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. Not because he's, you know, just the greatest Christian guy you've ever met. Nope. All kinds of severe moral failings. 
But when he recognized them, he brought them and confessed them to the Lord. He went to the cross. He received grace. And then he moved on in the power of the Spirit. And so when it comes to a a man like Ravi Zacharias, again, a man who, when he was alive, before all these allegations came out, I had a profound respect and admiration for. And now that he is dead... We can't know the depth of his repentance for his sin, if there was any, if he kind of followed the same thing that David did. We don't know about that with Ravi Zacharias. But even in light of these allegations, it is still possible that he, even he, was a man after God's own heart. If he acknowledged and turned from his sin like David. Because that's what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Again, not your perfection, but your brokenness and your willingness to acknowledge your brokenness, your willingness to acknowledge your need for the cross. We know how David followed the Lord. Again, we can't know for certain about Ravi Zacharias, and we can't know about you. But you are living. You are here this morning. You're hearing the word of God declared to you. There is still time for you to turn. Still time for you to acknowledge your sinfulness and to bring it to the cross where God will make atonement for your sin. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer and you're like me and you know this last week had all kinds of challenges and temptations that arose and some of them I had the victory and some of them I failed miserably. The same formula for you. Go back to the cross. Acknowledge your sin. Confess it to the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how you walk with Jesus. That's how you live every day. And you get better and better at it as the days go on. Because you're empowered by God's Spirit. You might still feel the consequences of your sin from time to time. After all, like we've said, everything has consequences, right? All sin has consequences, even forgiven sin. You might feel it from time to time and you can't escape it, but your account with God will be settled. Now in just a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and to lead us in singing again, and then we're going to go before the Lord's table in communion together. And this is a perfect opportunity for you to just think to yourself, to examine your own heart, to look at your own life, And go through this same process that we saw here with David in these chapters. Yes, Lord, huge blunder. I failed miserably, Lord. And I confess that. I bring it to you. I'm laying it at the foot of your cross. Because you have promised that that's where the grace is most accessible. And the deepest for me to take. So as the worship team leads us in singing, I'm going to ask you just to, you can sing along of course. But just think about your life. Think about this last week. Think about some temptation you may have absolutely, you know, just totally fallen to. Confess it to God. Ask him for grace. You will receive it. And then commit to turning from that sin and walking more in the footsteps of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we are sinful people. Lord, sometimes even the idea of confessing sin to me seems awkward because to me it's so obvious all of my my shortcomings and my sins are so obvious but lord we live in a broken world we live in broken bodies 
we're oftentimes inclined to justify ourselves, to even be proud of our sin in this world, and to insist upon it even. God, help us. Give us a spirit of humility to see all of the times we have failed, to be honest with ourselves about our sin. Lord, not so that we would you know, live as miserable failures or feel the crushing load of guilt or anything, but rather to glory in the cross, to glory in the grace that is ours. If we will do just that, confess our sin and turn to you. Lord, you have given so much. Lord Jesus, that you came to bear the punishment for that sin. If we would just confess and believe, Lord, help us to confess and believe. God, for those who are here this morning who maybe have never heard this kind of message before, help them to confess and believe. Lord, for those among us who, like myself, have been walking with you for years, help me to confess and believe. Lord, help me to know my sins that I might follow you all the closer. God, bless us with this. Use your spirit to come into our hearts and to convict us, to take away the scales from our eyes and to to shine light into the darkest parts of our hearts where that sin lurks. Help us to see it, to confess it, and to turn from it, and to walk with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.